ah, I have the recording <laughs> notification. Good. I've set it up to automatically start recording, but I didn't know how long you would take, so I paused it. Um, <laughs> could I have had any more difficulties today? We've had the Wi-Fi out. I've been up and down the stairs five or six times. I'm just <laughs> oh, my goodness. I didn't want to record on the phone because it would not transfer easily to the laptop. Right. Uh, so it, I was not getting anything from AOL until noon. I have no idea why. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's my home email and my Wink Books email. So it was it was weird. Let me tell you, it was weird. And I I used to be the the techno guru at my workplace. You know, if they couldn't get the geek, they came to mm-hmm. me and I would say, have you tried this and this and this? And I could <laughs> fix most things. It was so frustrating. I wanted to pull my hair out because I could not fix anything. Uh. But eventually it started up. So, oh, my goodness. So here we go. Here we go. <laughs> And actually, this time, I can see you because I couldn't see you last time. I, yeah, I tried a different lighting situation. I was hoping to use my daughter's room because she has more light. I mean, my office would be the best, but yes. my husband's on a meeting right now. So, Okay, let's start. Introduce yourself with your pen name. Tell us your series and the books that are in your series. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Hi, I'm Elaine Isaac. I write principally as E.C. Ambrose or as E. Chris Ambrose. I write knowledge-inspired adventure fiction, including the Dark Apostle series, which is dark historical fantasy about medieval surgery. The first volume in that is Elisha Barber, and it is complete in five volumes for your binge-reading pleasure. My (laughs) most recent publication in historical fantasy is Drake Master, which features a desperate race across medieval China to stop a clockwork doomsday device. And I also write archaeological thrillers, kind of in the vein of Steve Barry or Dan Brown, as E. Chris Ambrose. That's the Bone Guard series. And the first one of those is the Mongols Coffin. That's, that sounds really freaky, the Mongols Coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have, I guess they had, because you're fact-based, aren't you? Uh, you do re- a lot of research before you start. So I didn't know Mongols would have a coffin. Well, technically, the title for that book, uh, it's um, following a musical map to Genghis Khan's tomb. Okay. And the term, the Mongols coffin, where the title of the book comes from, is actually a term for uh, crows in China. Oh. Because you are correct. Mongols typically, at least uh, in early days, did not have coffins. They would use um, something like a sky burial, meaning that the, the bodies would be left out to be consumed and returned to the uh-huh. earth in various ways. So the uh, carrion birds were certainly part of that. So one of the Chinese words for, um, for crow actually means Mongols coffin. Now, you have the series, two series, uh, that are set in the, the Middle Ages. Is that your particular area that you'd love uh, to do it? Uh, it uh, is, yeah. Research um, for? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll research just about anything, but I keep coming back to the, the period, the sort of the high Middle Ages, which would be uh-huh. you know, about the 12th century through the 14th century. Um, and then, you know, even the archaeological adventures, which are contemporary novels, often are drawing on research from that period and the ways that history interacts with the present. Um, so, yeah, you know, 
castles and um, knights and the um, sort of the sense of dynamic conflicts during that mm -hmm. period, I guess, just keep drawing me back in. Um, also, there's an awful lot of um, innovation and yes. sort of momentum that society is gathering at that time, often in ways that we don't really think about now. We sort of relate that mm -hmm. with the, um, you know, the dark ages. And uh, certainly there's a lot of dark and nasty things about that period, but uh, there's also a lot of a lot of light spots, a lot of brightness, and people always striving to to do better and to reach higher. Yes, that's what I what I find when I do my research. I I will never forget, and this is this is Renaissance, uh, late mm -hmm. Renaissance that I'm thinking of. But the realization that Christopher Columbus um, had to have investment, an Italian had to have investment from the Spaniards and use a Portuguese invention in order to do his sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. So that just fascinated me that there were all these things coming together. We had lost those networks, you know, uh, when the Roman Empire collapsed, and then they're built back over time. And mm -hmm. that, that was fascinating to me. Is that something that you deal with, all those uh, inventions coming together? Yeah, I agree. Uh it's interesting, we tend to think of earlier time periods as being much more insular, that people didn't travel very much, uh, that there wasn't a lot of cross-cultural exchange. And yet the closer you look, the more you discover, you know, as you said, Columbus's journey being this very, um, you know, sort of required a lot of input from a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the exciting stuff going on in the Middle Ages was the same way. Like when I was working on Drake Master, um, the Mongol army, which, as we know, swept through a lot of areas and, and conquered a lot of people. Uh, but part of their MO is that if they found someone who had skills and knowledge that could be employed in the service of, of the Khanate, then they would basically bring that person into, um, into the bureaucracy, if those were the skills they had, you know, into the army. They were recruiting all the time. So the result is a court that actually has people from all different areas with all different backgrounds and knowledge bases. Um, and that was very deliberate. It's, you know, how can we enrich our court and find all of the different resources that we need? Um, so yeah, it was not, uh, not monolithic. So how did you wind up with medieval surgeries? <laughs> <laughs> so when I was writing my first series, um, which actually was as Elaine Isaac, I wrote uh, three books called the Singer's Legacy series. And I was working in book two, one of the characters gets injured. And I wanted to take a more uh, realistic approach to the types of medicine that they would have been using. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll do a little bit of research into medieval surgery and medieval medical techniques for this one scene that I'm writing, uh, where the character needs to, uh, you know, to be helped. And so I started doing a little bit of reading on that. I found a couple of interesting books and then I found a couple more and then I was reading the footnotes and then I found some books in the footnotes. <laughs> and before I knew it, I had a shelf full of books just about medieval surgery. And I thought, oh dear, this is, this is kind of a lot for the one scene. Um, and then I had sort of the vision that became uh, Elisha Barber and the Dark Apostle series. Um, which was the, the character standing in an open doorway backlit by the sun, 
there's blood dripping from his hands. And he says, my God, I've killed them all. Oh no! And I had to know who he had killed and why and what was going to happen next, because I knew this was a beginning and not an end. That sounds um, fascinating. And that was, so that was sort of the genesis of it was actually the research mm-hmm. that I was doing. Um, obviously it's a very high tension area. Uh, mm-hmm. People were trying their best, but they didn't always know very much. Uh, So even the humanists, even the people who were genuinely invested in trying to help people get better and achieve Uh better outcomes, didn't always have the tools that they needed. Um, So yeah, it's just very, very fraught. And that makes it ripe territory for fiction. I I definitely have a book now that I have got to read. (laughs) (laughs) So are you hybrid published? Are you traditional only, indie only? What's your journey on your publication? Uh, I am hybrid. My first two series came out with traditional publishers. The Singer's Legacy began at EOS Books, which is a division of HarperCollins. The Dark Apostle Books are out with Daw Books, um, which is a very well-established specialty house for mm-hmm. science fiction and fantasy. And the uh, archeological thrillers started out with a small press, um, And then when they closed, I took those indie. So I've been publishing those independently. Uh, And I like having that kind of flexibility and and making some choices about the the publishing paths. Yes. Okay. What do you find particularly hard about traditional publishing? Uh, You have to relinquish a lot of control. Mm. So that's one part. Ideally, you get a great team that comes along with that. So you're relinquishing that control in order to entrust it to someone who's going to do a better job. You know, I'm not a cover designer. I know what I like, but I don't necessarily know what's going to sell. So giving that over to some professional group makes a lot of sense. Uh, Likewise, the editorial input that I've had on those books has been fantastic. But also, I have to wait months or years Sometimes I'm counting on those people to do things that don't happen or that don't happen in a timely fashion. And that can be frustrating. Um, The flip side, of course, is that if you're indie publishing and those things don't happen, there's only one person to blame and that's me. Um, Is that the hardest part of indie? (laughs) Uh, Knowing that you've made wrong decisions and it's all on you. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes there's just, there's no... You know, it is what it is. It's out there now and it doesn't have yeah. quite the right cover or quite the right blurb or, you know, the good news is I could, I could change all of those things at the drop of a hat. You know, I could decide to change my cover tomorrow and, and go and do that across all the platforms. Um, but it's a lot to manage mm-hmm. and it makes me miss that, that team approach where I could say, you know, I just want to write a book, hand it over to my team and then have them take it from there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's possible as an indie writer, but it takes a lot more um, funding from the author yeah. and also mm-hmm. the time to locate and sort of train or you know find the right professionals to manage the parts of the process that I don't want to. Do you have any awards or recognitions? Um, I know Kay George uh, was Agatha nominated and uh, she was a national best-selling author at uh, Barnes and Nobles. Do you have anything like that? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have my fingers crossed, but it would help if I would enter a contest. <laughs> yeah. The, and, and sometimes it's hard to tell. There's a lot of contests nowadays that seem to exist just for the sake of authors being able to say, I won an award. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You pay them a sum of money 
and they give you an award. Look, you know, in some very small specialty category. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the average reader, they don't necessarily know that, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, your Josephine Smith Award for Fiction is sort of meaningless because Josephine Smith is making money off of writing contests, basically. Um, and so maybe that helps. I don't know. But the more reputable competitions uh, are, you know, this, this competition is a lot more fierce, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, everybody who, who wrote a book that year in that genre can, can enter um, or may be considered by the jury, depending on how the award is structured. So, mm -hmm. you know, kudos, kudos to the people who are in that sphere. Tell, uh, tell us about your writing process from the original idea all the way to the point where you let it go. Before <laughs> I let it go. That's a, that's a good phrase. Um, well, so I, I, I could talk about Elisha Barber because I mentioned that a little bit that uh, I had been doing my research and you know, I was sort of building the, the background. The good news about the Middle Ages is that um, I was already a member of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh -huh. uh, so I had some general familiarity with the Middle Ages from yeah. taking some college courses and just being an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And that gave me the base to understand and sort of place in context the specialized research I was doing around medieval surgery and kind of the, the societal structures and things that supported it. Mm -hmm. So for me, it usually begins with that kind of research, starting from the general and then to the more specific things when I say, oh, you know, I want to write this into this time period or into this specific location, then I'll start finding resources about that. Um, and when I have the, the moment, the vision of that character, it's a person in a place with a problem. Uh, it may not be the biggest problem they're going to face in the book, but it's a problem that they need to confront urgently uh -huh. right now. Mm -hmm. And that's when I know that I'm ready to start um, drafting and brainstorming the, the plot. What frequently happens is that I'll end up writing a chapter or two to get to know the character and to sort of fill in some of what's going on around them. Uh, and then I'll step back and do the brainstorming about, okay, so what does this situation lead to? What are the, the consequences? What can they try to do and fail at uh, in order to solve the problem? How does that make the problem worse? So I do a lot of pre-writing, um, sometimes using spreadsheets and note cards and, right. and putting those things together to develop an outline. Um, and then I take the outline and I, I pop it into a Scrivener file um, because I am a Scrivener fan. And that <laughs> enables me to organize my thoughts into, um, you know, I guess, a stronger structure. Uh -huh. so, and that's when I really start drafting. Um, when I'm actually drafting, when I'm ready to go, when I have my notes, I have that outline, then I'm actually writing pretty fast to get the words down and sort of get it all captured before it fades from view. How, how detailed is your outline? Do you do uh, like a sentence or a paragraph per scene or how do you handle that? Uh, it's usually a sentence for each point. <laughs> I think the sleeping dog is no longer lying. Um, <laughs> So that may be a scene, it may be a chapter, depending mm -hmm. on uh, the amount of material that needs to be covered there. Often while I'm doing that, I'll end up with ideas about uh, dialogue or character moments that need to be included. So a lot of my note cards may be really small. There's just a moment between two characters and I wanna make sure that that gets included. Um, so I'll put that in the outline also, but it's not 
you know, not even big enough to be a scene. It's just a moment. Um, usually that's about as detailed as they get. Sometimes I use a process uh, called story spine, which is where I kind of write a the fairy tale version of the story. So it's a simplified, literally once upon a time, you know, once upon a time, there was a barber surgeon in medieval England who found he had an unnatural affinity with death. And then, um, <laughs> so I kind of spin the plot out that way and I'll end up with uh, seven or eight paragraphs that tell essentially the story of the book. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you finish your draft, what do you do? Are you deep into the... Do you yank the whole thing apart and do a, a total revision of it? Or do you just start uh, fixing problems and plot holes and character discrepancies that you see? Usually, thanks to that process of brainstorming and outlining, I mm -hmm. don't have to rip things apart per se. Um, mm -hmm. I do often have to build more into them. Uh, wow. I tend to write a bit light. So my beta readers will come back to me and say, well, you know, I wanted more here or I didn't understand the motivation there. Uh, and I'll need to deepen the text and end up adding more words during my, uh, my rewriting process. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm more of a, a, a go in and I do those surgical strikes. I'm gonna take uh -huh. care of this little thing and little thing. Um, sometimes when I get feedback from my betas, uh, they'll say, well, you know, this character wasn't really resonating for me. And then I may need to do more work to make sure that that person is coming through clearly, um, which involves going into all different aspects of the text and, and really bringing it out more. So you give your beta readers a clean draft. By that, I mean, you fix all the grammaticals that you see. Right. Uh, and then you depend on them to, to tell you where there's holes, where things need to be built up where it's maybe a little sluggish. Mm -hmm. okay. And then what do you do next? You take it and you put it all together and you send it out to your readers again, or do you find new readers? Or do you consider that it's as good as you can make it at that point? Um, it depends a bit on the level of work or concern that my betas have. Um, if they were like, oh, this is really great. Love this a whole lot there's a few specific things that need to be fixed, mm -hmm. then maybe I'm submitting it to my agent or looking for a publisher at that point, or um, I'm moving it along down the indie mm -hmm. path. So you right. know, reaching out to my formatter and, uh, and such. By that point, if I were doing an indie book, I probably would already have the cover in hand or the cover right. in progress. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if what I'm hearing from them is that it needs more work, uh, if I've had to do extensive rewriting, then I will often go out to a different reader or a different group of readers uh, to see if the changes that I've made have addressed those, those problems and considerations. Right. Now you have these different series. Do you have to put yourself in a different mindset when you move from this particular protagonist to another protagonist or this different uh, idea of what's like the medieval surgical versus the, the thriller archaeological? How do you handle yeah, that? Um, I do. This is kind of one of the challenges of writing across multiple genres or through multiple series uh, is being able to move back again. So um, sometimes up, 
I get frustrated when I'm working with a trad publisher and also working on other projects, because when I'm in the drafting zone, especially, I want to be just focused on that. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to sit down with my outline and say, you know, I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to happen. I just need to write it and uh -huh. then be able to write every day until it's done um, without somebody popping up in the middle of that saying, oh, we need you to look at, you know, copy edits for this other project entirely. <laughs> you know, can you help us with some scene ideas for what we should put on the cover? Like, to me, that feels very intrusive. Go away. I'm writing. Um, <laughs> so there definitely is a mindset. I've developed some some techniques, I'm not always able to compartmentalize mm -hmm. because sometimes I do need to get back to them on, on other things. Um, so some of the techniques I use are sort of tricks like changing the wallpaper on my computer screen. <laughs> so when I fire up the computer, the image I see there is one that tells me, oh, I'm, I'm working on a contemporary novel today or I'm working on this other project mm -hmm. um, and just getting that automatic cue I use Pandora to create um, playlists, sort of to have a station, radio station yeah. for each project. So when I turn on my music to work on whatever it is that I'm doing, um, it will again cue me into uh -huh. that mindset. So it's kind of funny now because there are certain songs that like the minute I hear it, I associate it with one of my books. And that can be very convenient when I do need to come back to do the edits uh -huh. on that same book. Yeah. I can turn on the right soundtrack and I'm already getting in the mood for it. Uh, so it feels like a sort of a trick that I'm using to fool myself, but also it works, so. But do you have like different playlists for, for different books? You know, like the medieval historical music um, for your medieval surgery, and there's a different playlist for each one of the books. And so you have like dozens of playlists now. <laughs> Usually it's per series. <laughs> Uh, but for instance, in the Bone Guard books, which are the archaeological ones, mm -hmm. uh, I have sort of a theme song for my protagonist. So I started a station from that. The most recent book, uh, The Maya Bust, one of the other sort of series characters has a much stronger role. So I thought about, well, what would his theme song be? And then I kind of built my new station around that so that I was mm -hmm. sort of thinking more and you know, more invested in, in him as a character. Um, yeah. sometimes the hardest good. part is finding the right the right theme songs which <laughs> <laughs> sounds crazy but I did a I wrote a historical novel um, that I will be seeking a publisher for which is set in the Greco-Roman period and I was struggling and I sort of put it out on Facebook and I was like guys I need some kind of soundtrack for this thing because I'm having a hard time sort of entering the zone where I can close everything else out because I'm in, encapsulated in the world I'm trying to create. And somebody right. actually pointed me to the, um, I think it's an Assassin's Creed game, recently came out that has the Odyssey as like its, its theme. Oh. And people on YouTube have taken all of the incidental music from the game and made these, you know, four hour long, uh, or they're technically videos but it's just the music mm -hmm. basically but it's all uh instrumental greek sounding it's like okay and that that really worked that ended up being the soundtrack i listened to when i was working on that book <laughs> that's that's good that's a good uh, good technique because i will have my music but it doesn't really match the time period that i'm 
I'm listening to, and I can see how it would be a benefit because it does, there is the sound, the very difference of the sound would make you think of the very difference of the setting and, the, and people's perspective on things. So I can see yeah. how that would work. Stepping outside of your daily life, especially with that kind of historical material, you know, as you know, with your own work, um, mm -hmm. it helps to have those sort of cues to say, oh, I'm not writing a contemporary, so I need to, to be thinking in different ways and using different words and using different metaphors, especially, that will mm -hmm. capture and speak to the time period that I'm writing in. And yeah, having, you know, having the music, whether it's um, Latin chant, I've used sometimes Gregorian chants um, yes. or reproduction instruments just mm -hmm. makes me feel like I'm more present in that moment yep. I need to capture. So which tool do you find most helpful to your productivity? We've talked about Scrivener. We've talked about mm -hmm. uh, your spreadsheets, your note cards, the music <laughs> that helps put you in into the area. What do you think is your best tool? You cannot construct without it. Gosh. Don't say your brain. <laughs> tough. All of those things are very necessary. Um, I'm, I'm going to say my ergonomic desk. <laughs> I have been known, like, you know, I'm capable of writing in other places. And sometimes that's how it has to go because sometimes yeah. I'm in a hotel or I'm on a retreat or whatever and I don't have my desk. Um, but my desk has a very particular setup. It's a corner desk so that I can get everything in alignment mm -hmm. between me and the keyboard and the, you know, um, mm -hmm. and the screen and such. Um, and that's just an enormous help in terms of being able to immediately enter into the world of the book instead of having to fuss around with how high things are and how far I have to reach for my mouse and you know, all the all the stupid fiddly bits yes. that we don't want to think about. Mm -hmm. So you can make it, it's just you and the words then because you're not dealing with small, teeny tiny small issues that come up. Right. When you come across as you're writing and you come across something that you realize you need more research for, do you stop and do the research or do you stop, make a note and then continue on writing and then come back to it? If it's a minor thing and not entirely plot relevant, then I'll just make mm -hmm. a note. Um, I sort of notoriously sent a book to the beta readers once that had a parenthetical in the middle of it saying Lord's Prayer in Latin. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to need this. I'm just going to put a placeholder there. And then I had not actually found it. And, and you know, and that's not even a hard one. Um, so a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I need to know the name of this particular person during that mm -hmm. historical period. Or um, I'd like to find the specific term that relates to something. So, or, oh, I'm writing about this building and are the windows facing east or west? Mm -hmm. um, so I just yeah. have sort of a blotter, like a piece of scrap paper on my desk and I'll just make a note of it and, you know, chapter, whatever, a page, whatever, mm -hmm. um, go back and, and confirm this and then move on. If it is something that I need, that's going to be plot relevant, then I'll probably stop and and look it up. Um, but usually that's bad news because I can fall right back into the research rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm almost glad that we've gone to internet encyclopedias because I used to do research with my old Collier multi-volume encyclopedia uh, and I would get so distracted. I would be looking up Henry VIII and I would stop in Henry V and start reading. And so I would waste hours. <laughs> 
doing that. Do you find that happens to you when you're getting deeply into something or do you, uh, are you able to quickly go without distraction? It depends on how familiar I am with my resources. Um, if I kind of know exactly what I want, then it's easier to just zip in, grab it and, and zip back out again. Uh, but sometimes there's different levels like, oh, I need to know what the relationship between these two characters is. So you know, I'm looking up one of them and then I need to look up the other one and then I need to figure out what happens between them. And then, oh, hey, wait a minute. What's that about? That looks interesting. <laughs> you know? And yeah, an hour and a half later, it's like, oh, I was supposed to get more writing done today, but Oops. Oops. Kind of thing. How do you how do you maintain productivity? Do you follow a day-to-day word count? Do you have particular times that you like to write? Do you shut the door and lock it and say no one can avoid uh, come come interrupt me? <laughs> I do you have a sign on my office door that my daughter made? It shows a, a drawing of an axe and it says, do not open this door under pain of death unless you are really hurt. R-E-L-L-Y, or something is on fire. Um, so that's one answer. But yeah, I try to write in the morning, uh, uh, you know, after have breakfast, walk the dog, send everybody off to work or school, um, and then head to the desk. And ideally, I'm at the desk a little bit after eight o'clock. And that's sort of my first writing stint is from eight to 10, which is morning tea time. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then ideally I get the tea, chat with my husband, who's now working from home, go back upstairs and get another writing stint in between, Mm -hmm. you know, 1030 or so and noon, which is lunch. Um, And then if all continues to go well, then I'm writing again after lunch. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a friend that I do writing sprints with. So she and I will be on a Zoom call. We'll chat a little bit, check in about where our work is and what we're working on today. And then we'll just set a timer and write for 25 minutes or 30 minutes on um, check in again, and then go back to writing until three 30, which is you know when school gets out. So. I just received a notification and we have 10 more minutes. So I'm going to set my timer. <laughs> to make sure we don't get cut off. Okay. Um, um, anything else you want to say about productivity? What do you do when everybody's on vacation? Like your daughter's there and she's not in school. You've had <laughs> three really good sessions during the day. What happens to those? Um, it's, it's hard. It was very <laughs> hard. The, the early days of the pandemic yes. when suddenly nobody was going to school or work. Um, and my husband started working in the great room. My office is the loft that's over the great room. Uh-huh. So suddenly he was there all the time and he was yeah. on calls and, you know, answer, and having to talk to people and all these things. <laughs> I want everybody to go away again. <laughs> so I try to still defend some writing time, but also um, it's important to spend time with my family too. Yes. Uh-huh. So I'm trying to find the compromise and say, you know what? I worked really hard during the school year. And now I want to make sure that we get some family time together, that we do go off and, and have fun. And, um, and it's important to me, you know, I say I stop at 3.30. That's when my son gets home from school. Uh-huh. And that's afternoon tea time. So I make a cup of tea for my husband. Uh, you know, I have tea. My son and I will chat about like how his day was. And then we usually uh-huh. sit down and play a game together. Um, and it might be a short game or it might be longer, depending on if he has homework and stuff. But it's really nice to have that time to reconnect yeah 
And then after that is usually when I do my research reading. So, uh -huh. yeah, that sounds like a, a good process that you're using. Have we missed anything that we talked about before that you thought was really good? When I flubbed, I think I, I was the one that flubbed that whole thing because I, I do think I forgot to hit record right. Well, definitely record this one. Um, <laughs> I think we covered most of the ground. Was there anything else that you had, uh, had remembered or wanted to talk about? I can't remember. I was going okay. to depend on the recording to go back. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've gotten a little bit more nuts and bolts this time. Mm. Uh, is there any particular, I do have a question. Is there any particular craft that you think people should constantly practice, even though they're, they may have four or five books behind them, that they should always come back and rethink their way of looking at something. How they depict emotions. Ah. I think the emotional reality of characters on the page is something that often falls by the wayside, whether we're getting all excited because we have this new plot and we want to get out there and make stuff happen. Um, or whether we just think, well, you know, this isn't really a book about relationships. Like most books are not about relationships and yet relationships are usually key, whether that's the relationship between the cop and their partner or the people that they work with or the, um, the criminals that they're interrogating. You know, there's always those human moments that really animate the story and bring it home for the readers and make it feel like real people are in these situations. Um, so I think that's an area that writers should be sort of returning to and circling back around. Like, how can I sharpen these characters? How can I reveal them more? And in particular, how can I reveal how they work together or don't and what kind of personal tensions are informing their lives? That's, a, that's excellent. That, that's a really great thing right there. Well, I'm, I think we've come to the end. Um, I want to thank you for surviving through all my floods and all my technical difficulties and being willing to, to try this again with me and to, to wait until we got things going today. So thank you so much, Elaine. Well, thank you very much for having me, Em. I really appreciated it. <laughs> okay, great. So you, well, we won't see each other, will we? Because <laughs> I've been saying that to, my first two interviews were with people that I see in our local, oh, Local writing chapters. Uh, what do you think about those? Well, I have a couple of small local groups that I work with. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is often face to face. The other one is, uh, you know, most of us are in New England, but we're managing the meetings on Zoom just because that's easier since we are, live in different areas. Uh, right. And it really helps in terms of accountability and having people to to talk with, either to celebrate your work or to brainstorm. Um, or to gripe with when things aren't going quite right. So, right. you know, I love having those people as a resource. Um, there's some overlap between those groups and my beta readers. At the mm -hmm. moment, I don't use a workshop um, format, although there's times that I've certainly found that useful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the company of other writers is a wonderful thing. If for no other reason, then you can moan about a problem that you're having and they will provide solutions that they have found or they have they can commiserate correctly. <laughs> yes. Yep. I find that I'm very having trouble with my imaginary friends again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Elaine. Thanks for having me. You okay. take care. Bye. Bye. -bye.